This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Joe Pfeiffer's final interview is HFMA president and CEO today on HFMA's Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Erica Grotto. At my first all-staff meeting at HFMA, President and CEO Joe Pfeiffer introduced a few new employees, myself included, and asked us all to come to the front of the room and sing our college fight songs. Luckily, he was joking, but I did learn a little bit that day about how Joe relates to people. He likes to make personal connections. He likes to have fun. And whoever you are, he wants you to bring your whole self to work, even if you root for a rival team. HFMA has changed a lot in the eight years since I started, and even more since Joe first became a member in the early 80s. Recently, I got the chance to talk with him as he reflected on 40 years and looked toward the future. I've never said this to anyone I've ever interviewed on this podcast or elsewhere, but I don't want to do this interview. I don't oh, want... Oh, come on. It makes me so sad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the whole thing has mixed emotions. I mean, I love my job. I have a great job, but everything has a time and a place. And, you know, we want to do some things uh, personally. It's a good time for HFMA. And there's, uh, there are mixed emotions about it. I mean, it's a, uh, it's a great organization, great people, you know, like you and everybody else. So that it is not an easy thing to do. Let's talk about some of your HFMA memories. I'm, I'm excited to hear this because you were a member first. You've been with HFMA for a long time in some capacity or another. You were chair at one point and you've been president and CEO for the last, tell me the right number. Is it 11 years? Yeah. 11 years. Okay. What are some of your best memories with HFMA? The memories that pop up to me mostly are in my days as a volunteer. And the first goes back to very early on in my time when I was a chapter president. And at that time, Michigan had five chapters. And I was president of the Central Michigan chapter. And we had two other chapters in the northern part of the state, one in the Upper Peninsula and one in the northern part of the Lower Peninsula, and then our Central Michigan chapter. And we decided to merge. And that was way before many chapters. Now, we've had other chapters that have merged in the last few years, but this was kind of before its time. But for the same kinds of reasons that chapters are merging today, it was kind of my claim to fame. I don't think I would be in this seat today were it not for that process, because through that merger, I got to know people in the national office of HFMA. I got to know Dick Clark, and I got to know some of the other people that helped us with the merger. And it also, you know, helped on you know on the local side, you know, within Michigan. Then I became the what was then the chapter liaison representative, which is in today's terms a regional executive, and then you know went from there to serve on the board and those kinds of things. I wouldn't have had that exposure without the chapter merger experience. So that was a pretty meaningful activity at that time. That again, you look where you are today, and so many things in our lives have contributed to bring you to that point, and you think. 
my gosh, I wouldn't be here today, you know, without that. And that's certainly one of them. And this was also back in my year of chair, but I went down to the Region 9 conference and they do a crawfish. I don't know if they still do this or not. I haven't been there a couple of years, but they did a crawfish boil as a, you know, chapter event to kick off the meeting. And my flight got delayed. Ahead of time, I had told them how much I love crawfish, right? And, you know, made in the South. I'd been to New Orleans before and, you know, that kind of thing. So my flight got delayed and I didn't get to the hotel till about 10 o'clock at night and I missed the whole thing. So I was kind of bummed. I thought, man, that would have been fun. So I get to my hotel room and um, for whatever reason, I'm, you know, putting my stuff away and I, I don't know why I did this, but I pulled back the curtain of my shower and there in the bathtub in my hotel room bathroom was a cooler, a good size cooler that was completely full of crawfish. <laughs> it was all left over from their dinner earlier because they knew I liked crawfish so much, they had left that for me. And so uh, it was a Monday night, Monday night football was on. And I sat in my hotel with the cooler at my side eating crawfish by myself, um, which was just kind of hilarious. I don't know if you want this many, but this one is my actually my most special memory. And again, this was also when I was chair we were backstage. It was at uh, what was then called the Annual National Institute or ANI. Now we call it Annual Conference. And we were about to go out and be introduced as a board. And I was going to speak and all that kind of stuff. And James Stewart, who uh, to this day is a great friend of mine, at the time he was on our board. And uh, he was uh, also at the time, he's now retired, but he worked for Cedar sinai in, in LA. A big tall guy. And so he must have sensed that I was nervous because we were all lined up to go on stage. And he came over and he put his arm around me, this big tall guy, put his big old arm around me and said a prayer for me. And I'm like, oh my gosh. I mean, it was, I'll just say it, it was a beautiful moment. And it settled me down and went on stage and I did my thing. And to this day, James is a dear friend of mine. I could probably go on, Erica, and uh, you don't want a whole thing filled with memories because there are lots of them, but those are a couple of them that just pop up to the top of my head. Those are great stories. And yeah, I'm sure. I mean, you've been with, when did you join HFMA? 1983. So yeah, that's a lot of years of memories. It sure is. Never in my wildest dreams could I have envisioned even being a regional person, much less being on the board, much less a chair, and then now sitting in the CEO role. That uh, if somebody was said to me back then, you know, that that was my future, I just would have laughed about it because I, I just would never have had that in my sight. But my start with HFMA was like so many stories that you hear from members, volunteer members, and that is somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, you need to do this. You need to get involved with this group. And at the time, I worked for Ernst & Young. I was an auditor, healthcare auditor in Michigan. And yeah, it was a good way for networking. And it was a good way you know, for content to learn more about the industry. I was new in public accounting and I was new in healthcare. And so I had a lot to learn, but also there was a networking opportunity and then got involved with, you know, different committees. And next thing you know, I'm you know, the chapter president and it went on from there. So it all came from a tap on the shoulder that said, hey, you really need to do this. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think that's where a lot of people's HFMA journey begins. So absolutely. Yeah. Um, if you're if you're listening and you're a new member, who knows? You could someday be CEO. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but even if even if those if those the future doesn't have this kind of an outcome, I've reaped benefits from HFMA through the 80s when I never had would think about being in this kind of a role. It helped me from day one. 
And, and, I, and I mean that sincerely. I, I really would not be where I'm at today without that. I want to ask you about culture because I know it's really important to you. I know from hosting this podcast, it's a really difficult thing to get right. And and I think we've got a great culture here at HFMA. So what do you think are the most important things for leaders to know about building a positive culture, especially at such a time in healthcare when it feels more critical than ever? Yeah. Well, gosh, I appreciate this question too, because um, I appreciate you bragging about our culture because if you ask me what I, am I most proud about today about HFMA and our staff and what we do, it's the culture that, and I would say that you all have developed because, you know, it, it is a team sport. I do think there are a couple things that are important in the development of a, a culture. And again, everybody's got their own view. I'll just give you, you know, Joe Pfeiffer's view on culture development. Uh, and it's not a textbook approach. It's kind of kind of common sense, but that's just my style. I think, and this goes to any leader, but lowering your ego. You know, in my case, I'm the CEO, right? Now, everybody knows that I'm the CEO. I don't need to go into a room. I don't need to make people know that I'm the CEO. There's no need to bring that ego into a conversation, into a room, whether it's a virtual room or live in-person room. Now, you know, there's times when, again, as a CEO, I need to put my foot down and I need to make a decision. There's some things that I need to do. But the reality is if you create the right culture and you construct the right team, most decisions can be made downstream and you don't have to be this like big authoritative CEO. I take this approach of setting my ego aside and saying, how do we approach this as a team? And you know, how do we value each other in that process? I think if you just stand up and you feel like you have to make people know that you're the CEO, that could be an intimidating environment. I know that I can be intimidating just from my title. I don't need to throw an ego and an attitude into that. So that's issue number one. Issue number two is, and I'll just be honest, I love to laugh. And there are very few situations where you can't find some humor in. So I would say 99% of our meetings, our conversations, our interactions start with laughing about something. There's always something to laugh about. Now, there are times over the years where, hey, something really serious comes up or disappointing or doesn't always work out that way. But my gosh, we can't take the time to laugh about some things. Then I think we're taking ourselves a little too seriously. And, and there's a really practical benefit of, of having a sense of humor when you approach this, because I think it makes people feel a little bit more at ease. And I, I think one thing that's important to me in my leadership role is that people see me as as a good guy, as a nice guy, and uh, that I'm okay to be around. And you shouldn't be intimidated by me, which kind of goes back to the first point. Last night over dinner, I was telling my family that I was going to interview you today. And my kids said, oh, well, you know, who's who's that? And and I said, well, he's the CEO. He's, you know, he's the big boss. Right. And my husband said, you know, in a lot of places, you don't even get to ever meet the big boss, let alone have a, a conversation. I was reflecting on... One of my first couple of meetings, staff meetings, when I joined HFMA, there were two things that you said that resonate with me even today. One was there was something, and I don't remember what it was, there was something that HFMA had done. There was great hopes for it. It hadn't gone great. And and you stood up in front of the room and you said, this didn't go how we wanted, but we gave it our best. We tried it. 
and we can move on. And what you said was, if we try and we fail, then we tried. As long as we gave it our best, we tried. And and that was really encouraging mm. to someone who was just joining an organization and eager to try new things. Like, okay, well, that this is the kind of environment that I want to be in. You mean like trying a podcast? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, and here I am. And here you are. <laughs> yeah. The other thing that you said that I think a lot of people say, but don't always make good on, but you have is, if you need something, if you have a question for me, email me. Yeah. And how many times have I emailed you over yeah, the years? You have. Yeah, and, and you're uh, not shy. Yeah. And I really appreciate that. Once when I, I talked about something on a podcast episode that you said to me, how is HFMA doing in this? In this, I don't know if you remember that. We were talking about moms in the workplace. It was women's issues. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I remember and, that vividly. You wrote to me and said, how are we doing? And first I went, wow, I really appreciated the question. And I also felt like I can answer honestly. You did which, answer honestly. Yeah. So yeah. so that's something that feels really good. You know, I say all this in terms of this, and I will just tell you, Erica, I am an introvert at heart. One of the most intimidating environments for me, I will be honest, is the church lobby after service when people are milling around and just chatting. I will never get comfortable with that. I'm not all that comfortable on just these big social gatherings. So I don't approach these relationship kind of issues that we're talking about as this extrovert that's you know out there shaking hands all the time. That is not my style. It's about having you know a passion and a, a personal connection. Honestly, that's where introverts shine. And, you know, many of our members are introverts. And I, I wouldn't want our members to hear this thinking, well, hey, that's just because, you know, a Pfeiffer is just this outgoing guy and he does that. It doesn't come naturally, doesn't come easily. But what does come naturally and easily is caring, caring about the people we work with. So when I asked that question, it's like, hey, how are we doing on this? I wanted an honest answer. I wanted to know. I do not want us to be one of those do as I say, not as I do organizations. And I don't remember specifically what you said, but you gave me some input on how we approach women in the workplace that where we needed to improve. And I loved that feedback, but that comes from a personal connection. It doesn't come from some extrovert that's out there, you know, glad handing. So for whatever it's worth, I do approach this as an introvert. And I think that doesn't preclude me. I think I think in a lot of ways that enhances the ability to have those personal connections back. One of the things that's that's important, and again, every organization, I mean, we do have a relatively small organization. It's not that big. We have 75 employees, and but we're dispersed around the country. We don't have like one office where everybody's in the office every single day. So that's a challenge in terms of culture development. But one of the things that's just important is that, you know, we're all adults that work here. And we, I just strongly believe we need to treat adults like adults. So I am not hovering out. If you have an errand you have to run in the middle of the day, then Darn it, you go run an errand in the middle of the day. The issue is, can you get the job done? So I myself, I coach soccer, you know, my kids were young. A couple of days a week, I'd have soccer practice at, you know, maybe six o'clock in the evening. I'd leave the hospital. All the other executives are looking at me like, why are you leaving? And that's, well, I'm leaving. I got to go coach. But, you know, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night, I'm down there doing email. And that whole mindset of, hey, listen, we have to treat adults like adults. And the, and the issue is not you punching the clock and getting the next number of hours. It's can you get the job done? And can we treat adults like adults? And we've adopted that culture at HFMA. And I think that's what gives people to, to feel good about where they work is because they're being treated like an adult. You're not just taking somebody's orders, but you're fulfilling a personal mission. Not to get too sappy about it, but 
I think that's what brings meaning to employment. So I think that's really important. I want to ask you the hard question last. Behind the scenes, when I've been talking with the editorial team about doing this interview, I've been jokingly referring to it as Joe Pfeiffer's final mic drop, because, <laughs> because now is your chance to say everything you want to say before you retire <laughs> about the industry. So you can just let loose as we're recording here. But Oh my gosh, be careful. <laughs> be careful. HFMA as an organization is careful not to take political sides. We don't dwell on negativity about the healthcare industry. The the idea is to build up the industry, build up the people in the industry, encouragement, striving to be better. And as we've talked about, that seems to be who you are as a leader. But in the last few years, which started with your hard truths piece in early 2020, you've been more vocal about all stakeholders taking responsibility for the state of the industry and for taking real steps toward real improvement. So now's your chance. Yeah. <laughs> tell me, so, tell me what yeah. you think. What are your, what are your final pearls of wisdom? So I'm probably going to disappoint you. I don't know that I have a mic, <laughs> mic drop moment. And that's because I have been more vocal in the last few years. Now, maybe it was because I knew somehow, some way I was getting near the end of my career. I, that was not a conscious thought, but maybe subconsciously I thought, hey, might as well lay it out there. But I think there are other things that were motivating me to be more outspoken about this. First of all, I'll say we still don't take political sides. And there's a there's a real benefit to that in my mind. Now, whoever succeeds me, they may have a different view on this, but where my thinking is by not taking political sides, the benefit of that is that and we're, you know, we're objective data-driven people. By and large, HFMA members are are data-driven people, finance people, we look at data. And as an organization, by not taking political sides, we can take an objective view on our industry. And that's a powerful thing. And that's different from organizations like the American Hospital Association or American Health Insurance Plans or American Medical Association or other associations that advocate for one part of the industry or another. That's a role that's important for them to play. And I'm not demeaning that whatsoever. I mean, that is an important role for them to play. That's not the role that I wanted HFMA to play. I wanted us to step back and be able to look objectively on our industry and help us all improve. And again, so not taking political sides doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about how we improve. In fact, I think just the opposite, we need to. And, you know, part of this trip down memory lane, I've been thinking about things over the years and, and this metaphor popped into my head. I view it like a family, like siblings. And if you think about kids, oftentimes in the comfort of their home, they'll fight like crazy, right? <laughs> they fight over, as youngsters, they fight over toys. When they get in their teens, they fight over really, you know, ugly things and they'll say ugly things to each other. And sometimes you think, my gosh, these kids hate each other. But somebody from the outside criticizes one of those siblings, what do siblings do? They stick up for their brother or sister. And that's kind of how I see things. On the inside, I see things that we need to do better. But when people on the outside that are not from the industry and don't know what it's like to deliver care, don't know what it's like to even do the financial management of this industry and the complexity and the challenges and how hard things are, and then they start lobbing bombs and, and criticizing the industry from an, many times and you know, a less than factual or a, you know, a biased approach, then I will stand up for our industry. I'm really proud of healthcare in this country. But you know, there are some serious things that we need to do better. We have a financial problem in this country. We still spend 
and an ever-increasing amount of our gross domestic product is spent on healthcare. And the reason I call that mathematical is by definition, that can't go on forever. At some point, we're going to get to a crisis point. At some point, and you could make an argument, we've already passed this point, is that we're spending money on healthcare that can or should be spent in other ways in our society. Now, that's not a political statement. That's just, again, it's mathematics. We're spending nearly one-fifth of our economy on healthcare, and it used to be one-tenth. Well, what else is getting left out? It's either less taxes for our population, or it's other spending on social programs or combination thereof. Why do we have a debate about infrastructure in this country? Well, it's because we've not spent money on infrastructure, and one could make an argument that comes from spending too much on healthcare. And so whether you agree with that statement or not, you have to agree because it's a mathematical fact. You can't keep spending more and more percent of our gross domestic product without at some point creating a problem. And that's an issue that we have to solve in this industry. If we continue to sit back and you know wait for that day and then let somebody else solve it, there's no way that somebody on the outside, be it a politician or anybody on the outside that has not worked in healthcare, there's no way they're going to come up with solutions that work well for us. We have that knowledge. We can make that change. So, you know, one final plea to our members is to lead that change. And that's why we organizationally have adopted this cost effectiveness of health. We need to focus on how do we keep people healthy? How do we keep them out of the hospital? How do we better manage their chronic conditions so we keep them from developing complications? Because that's where we spend so much money on healthcare, and that's going to help solve you know, this mathematical dilemma that we have. So you know, that would be issue number one. Issue number two is we have got to do a better job of creating a more understandable and a friendly environment for the consumers of healthcare. And I say this on stage frequently. I ask, and I quit asking for a show of hands because I would be disappointed about it. But I ask the audience, how many of you have either had to access your healthcare system or have done a very detailed personal walkthrough of the processes in your organization? And the reality is, I think we have too many processes that are established that are for the benefit of either the hospital or the physicians or the health plan, and they're not designed with the consumer in mind. I know you have grand plans to travel the world and spend time with your family. That's very exciting. It's all well and good. However, just in case you uh, find yourself wanting a retirement career, you have been a frequent contributor to this very podcast. You've interviewed lots of really exciting, uh, important people. And a few years ago, we submitted one of those interviews for an Excel award. It's Excellence and Leadership in Association Media. And we won that award. Recently, I was given the trophy for the award. Oh, very cool. I love it. But this wasn't my episode. This was your episode. So I'm going to make sure that you get this trophy that you can put on your shelf. And perhaps it will inspire you to be a podcaster in your retirement. First of all, that will mean a lot, and I will proudly display that, even though I could make an awfully strong argument, Erica, that you deserve it more than I do, because you're the one that has you know, teed up this podcast so well, and, and any of my uh, interviews or any of my conversations, you were an integral part of. So I could make an argument that it really belongs in your office more than mine, but, but I will accept it, because that'll be a good memory. So thank you. And you, ne you never know. 
you know, one of the questions that people ask me is like, what are you going to do in retirement? I am on a not-for-profit board, Altarum Institute, which is a healthcare organization. Uh, again, it's not-for-profit. It's pretty good size, a uh, range of about $75 million in revenues. And we deliver a lot of healthcare consultative services, do a lot of government contracting and kind of a think tank type organization doing some really cool things in the clinical space geared toward programs that benefit those either Medicare, Medicaid, or you know, the indigent population, those people without uh, many resources. And it ranges from moms and dental programs and to databases and, and data management and everything in between. So I am, uh, I'm going to stay on that board. In fact, I'll be board chair starting uh, mid-year this year. Other than that, my plan is to wait and see. Some of the guidance, of course, again, being one that likes to plan for the future. I've read a few books and I listened to some podcasts about uh, retirement and everybody's got their own thoughts. But what I'm starting to feel like what resonates for me is I want to get retired, get into a new rhythm of life, and then we'll see what happens. I'm not going to drop off the face of the earth. Gosh, I'd even come back and do a podcast someday if you'd ever allow me to. But that's the plan is just to get into retirement, get a new rhythm and then see what develops from there. But I, I love healthcare too much, and I see the need to make it better too much to just walk away and, and say whatever happens, happens. So we'll stay engaged in healthcare in some way, shape, or form. Anyway, long way to answer your question, but I love the fact that you kept the trophy, and I will proudly display that in my office. I wish you all the best in your retirement. I know you won't go far. I know we'll still see you at annual conference and Absolutely. like that. But, um, you know, as as sad as I am to see you go um, and as grateful as I am for your leadership, I'm I'm really excited for you and to see what's what's to come. I'm happy for you. So congratulations. Well, thank you. But uh, let me just return the, the, the compliment. You're the best. I mean, you you epitomize what I love in an employee. You took the seed of an idea about a podcast and you ran with it and you developed it and you made it a professional quality level podcast and you know things don't happen i couldn't have done that and i couldn't have even just sat back and said you know here's what you need to do to do it you took it upon yourself to learn how to do it and develop it in a way where it's really again like a professional level podcast that's that inspiration that um, that motivation that that passion that i just love to see in our employees and you epitomize that so well for HFMA. So thank you. And you have to put that part in the podcast. Thank you again. I really appreciate this. No, oh, you're welcome. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, this was fun. Voices in Healthcare Finance is a production of the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Additional reporting is by Nick Hutt, Sean Stack, and the HFMA editorial staff. Audio editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is the Chief Content Executive. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. If you haven't looked into opportunities with your local chapter, why not get started today? Visit hfma.org slash chapters to connect.